if you are a um, very masculine man, you and you carry yourself with that sort of self-confidence, you automatically assume to be someone of importance, and that what you say you no know, matters, and people listen to you. Whereas for an effeminate man, man like me, and I suspect that for most women, um, we are often ignored to start off with, and we actually have to prove ourselves to be actually listened to. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Dr. Clara Tuckming Su arrived in Canberra in 1989 as a Chinese-Malaysian man. Recently, she transitioned to being a woman, uh, and even more recently, uh, rose to prominence, having handed back her medal in the Order of Australia uh, as a protest against the decision to upgrade Margaret Court to a companion in the Order of Australia. Uh, Clara Tuckming Su is uh, uh, not just somebody who has worked with the homeless, people uh, struggling with gender issues and disadvantaged people, uh, but also, as uh, one of her colleagues puts it, just a bloody good GP. Uh, she is uh, somebody who is wise and thoughtful, uh, and it's a real pleasure to have her here on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. I don't know whether I can actually live up to all those epithets. <laughs> so tell me about your uh, your upbringing. You were born in Malaysia? Um, I was born in Malaysia. I spent the first 17 years of my life in Malaysia. To those of your listeners who know, I spent most of my childhood and adolescence in a place called Pataling Jaya, which is actually a suburb community of Kuala Lumpur, and went to a school that was actually run by the Plymouth Brethren. Um, so um, quite a lot of my non-Malay contemporaries actually became quite fundamentalist Christians but I managed to successfully resist the proselytizing. Uh, and I went to England when I was 17. I got a scholarship to go to a public school in England. Um, and then after a couple of years there, I ended up in Cambridge. Were you always interested in medicine? Well, no, there's a story about that there. So, um, well, you probably know, know that um, uh, lots and lots of ambitious uh, Asian families tend to all want their children to be um, doctors or lawyers or something like that. Um, and my mother wasn't any different. In fact, she was like tiger mum plus one. <laughs> what did she do? Oh, she's, she had a very, very strong personality. And um, uh, uh, in fact, you know, my brother and I, so I've got a brother who's a year older than me, um, led a very cloistered life. So she would ferry us to school, and when school uh, finished, she would ferry us home. So we didn't have a chance to partake in any extracurricular activities or sport or get corrupted by all the naughty boys. <laughs> <laughs> Her attitude was, well, you know, you don't actually need to actually um, uh, learn to socialise. You can learn it all by watching television. Or, or, and, and television would have been rationed, you know. Um, the rest of the time, you better study and make sure you get your straight A's. Um, so um, uh, fortunately for her, I was a straight A student. 
study extremely well academically. Um, so like a lot of Asian families, you know, they then uh, assume that medicine would be a good career choice for me. Um, in fact, it has turned out to be a good career choice. That's all by accident. Um, so um, uh, when I was 17, in the year when, um, just before I left Malaysia, I went to see my um, careers tutor at, in school in Malaysia, and she gave me a questionnaire to fill in. It was just, actually just a one-page questionnaire with, I think, about five or six questions on it. And at the bottom of the questionnaire, um, there was a list of three professions I thought I might be interested in. Um, and I didn't list medicine. And she looked at it and looked at my answers, um, which, you know, tested for, you know, um, uh, uh, likes, dislikes and aptitudes. And she then said to me, well, it's interesting that you haven't listed medicine because I would have thought, you know, from reading um, your answers to this, that medicine would have been quite a good career for you. So um, do you think, you know, that um, you've decided not to list medicine um, because your parents want you to be a doctor. And I thought, I thought about that, and I thought, well, it was a bit of an act of rebellion on my part. I uh, suppose I was trying to say you know, that I didn't want my parents to actually dictate my life choices, um, not doing medicine just because my parents wanted me to would happen also allowing my parents to dictate my life choices. So I thought I would allow myself to keep an open mind about it. And of course, you know, when I then I went to school in Oakham and did really well scholastically there as well, and got an exhibition to Cambridge, you know, I really couldn't think of anything else you know, to apply for except medicine because I didn't feel that strongly about anything in particular. So I thought, oh well, fine, you know, I'll sign up for medicine, you know, and um, uh, and I vaguely floated to un through university, vaguely floated to um, my um, uh, junior hospital career. Um, and it really wasn't until um, I met um, uh, my current husband and uh, had my emotional needs met that I really settled down to um, working on my career. And you know, after all the twists and turns and where I end and how I end up where I am, I do think that um, general practice um, has actually been the right career for me up to now. Was your husband the reason you moved to Australia? No, um, we moved to Australia because um, after my brother and I finished our studies in the UK, my parents and I and us decided that uh, it might be a good idea for the boys not to return to Malaysia um, uh, because of the racial the issues of racial discrimination in Malaysia, and we then talked about whether to stay in the UK or to come to Australia, and decided we would come to Australia. And what got you involved in the issues of social justice that you're interested in? Because the upbringing you've described doesn't naturally speak to me of somebody who would have the degree of sensitivity to uh, issues surrounding people who are vulnerable and on the margins of society, who are the, the people who uh, a lot of your work has served. Um, I think part of it is really um, uh, speaks of my, I suppose, my own innate temperament um, because, and this is something that I've only just sort of remembered more clearly right, in the last few years, you know. Um, I can remember um, when we first moved to Pataling Jaya when I would, have, I would have been about, I think, four or five years old, um, living in this tiny terrace house, you know, with um, a bare ground for a garden. Um, 
Uh, and one of the few things we actually had, and we had moved down from Penang, you know, and Penang at the time had a very vibrant, you know, um, uh, uh, um, uh, street food community and so on. And then so we moved to this place where there's almost nothing around us, you know, a little bit like Gangalin, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, but one of the things that we did have was that there was still um, uh Ven street vendor, this man who rode around on his bicycle, um, selling ducks webs and duck um, uh, uh, tongues. Now I know for um, your Australian listeners they might think what, um, but for um, uh, Chinese people in that at that time, you know, it was uh, meant to be a bit of a treat. And every now and then, you know, my parents would buy some ducks, duck tongues and duck webs for us, you know, as a snack. And I can remember, you know, thinking, oh, so we paid him, I, I, I can't remember how much it cost, but maybe it's, let's say one Malaysian dollar, you know, um, for four duck tongues. And I'm thinking, now how much would that have cost him to buy at the market? You know, so how much of a profit would have it made? You know, is that actually enough to actually uh, sustain his living? You know, and I would worry, you know, that, oh, we weren't actually patronizing him enough, you know, for him to actually make a living. So, um, so obviously, you know, so when I remember something like that, you know, I saw think, yeah, so even at that age, you know, I was actually worrying a little bit about the disadvantage, you know, mm. um, uh, uh, and it wasn't actually something that had been inculcated in me or really encouraged my parents. I think my parents had said, oh, don't be silly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think there, there was already that sort of strand, you know, and, um, uh, and I've lived most of my life, you know, as a disadvantaged minority in some form or other, you know. So obviously, you know, um, uh, uh, during the arc of my life in Malaysia, there were increasing levels of uh, discrimination towards the Chinese in Malaysia. Um, uh, so, you know, I think a lot, uh, we were meant to feel you know, in a way that um, uh, we, that the um, uh, Malay majority disapproved of us. Um, and then, you know, when I went to, the, and then as I grew into adulthood and I went to the UK, you know, um, and, in, and then subsequently Australia, um, I was an effeminate gay Asian man, you know. So they already, um, uh, so being Asian, I was already in a racial minority. Being gay, you know, I was in a sexual minority. Being effeminate, I was a minority even within my own sexual milieu. Uh, I think all those um, experiences, you know, made me understand what it's like to be part of a disadvantaged minority. And when I then joined my current practice, you know, which already had a strong ethos of actually serving the disadvantaged, I found that that actually, I suppose, accorded you know, with some, some of my beliefs you know, and philosophies. When you're working with people who have traumatised or, or vulnerable, how do you as a GP get, get them to open up in the way that you need to, to be able to serve them well? Well, I think all good GPs actually um, develop quite good listening and relationship skills. Um, so I think one of the things that um, uh, I also say you know, is that I think that um, becoming a GP has actually made me a better person. Um, uh, I think there's a lot more emphasis now put on um, uh, um, c 
consultation skills you know, for uh, when medical school students go through medical school. But at the time that I went through medical school, um, we had virtually no training on that. Um, the sort of patterning, we, we, the modeling we actually had you know, from watching our, our senior doctors, if anything, actually taught us poor um, consultation skills. So um, I think if I had actually stayed on hospital medicine, being you know quite academically successful and and I would admit quite a competitive person, I would probably have bought into the competitive ethos you know, of major hospitals and probably stayed you know in in that sort of bubble. I think that to be a good GP, one needs to actually as I said earlier, develop good listening skills and to actually learn how to actually try and walk in others' shoes. So I think that, you know, um, uh, that was part of my training as, uh, uh, as a good GP, to be a good GP. Let's uh, let's dive into talking about your sexuality because it's such a such a fascinating part of who you are. Uh, did you know you were gay from an early age? Um, yes, it might shock some of your listeners, you know. But um, uh, uh, when I was nine, um, one of my my male class teacher um, was changing his shirt in the class, you know, and I remember getting an erection. <laughs> Uh, and through most of my teenage years, you know, I had these sort of fantasies you know, about my magically um, being turned into a woman and having um, relationships with uh, my male teachers. And how was, how was that received by your parents? Oh yeah, well they didn't know anything about that. You know, okay. we never di- um, uh, In most good uh, Chinese families, sex is something that's never discussed. Everybody is terribly coy about it. We had an idea that sex occurred, you know, as to what actually happened at sex act, you know, we were all pretty much kept in the dark, really. When did you come out? Um, well, when I was in... Well, I formally sort of came out to myself anyway when I was about 21. So when I was studying in Cambridge, I had a Malaysian friend who had also gone to study in England. Um and he had gone to the same public school as I had, but ended up at another university. Um, he then invited me for his 21st birthday and said, oh, and by the way, I'm gay, and uh, my boyfriend's going to be there, and we've got a few other gay people uh, at the birthday party as well. I didn't really say anything to him at the time, but I sort of went away and mulled about it, and I thought, look, if Philip Chai has got the courage to actually accept his sexuality and to do something about it, then maybe you know it's time for me to actually accept that. But I think part of what held me back you know, was this, this magical belief you know, that if I actually didn't do anything about it, then, and I, I suspect a lot of people who've grown up in a um, uh, re- repressive environment probably think the same, you know, that if I never actually didn't allow myself to have sex with another man, then maybe magically all this would just go away, you know. Um, but yeah, so that's when I sort of came out. <laughs> and when you moved to Australia, did you experience much racism or homophobia? Well, um, I didn't really say this to my family. We just had a discussion about, you know, whether we would stay on in England or Australia, you know, and uh, for a variety of reasons, the whole family decided to migrate to Australia. We quite enjoyed being in England, my brother and I. And when I thought about 
whether I would actually move or not. You know, one of the reasons I decided to move was because of the class system in the UK. You see, when I first moved to the UK, I was quickly I quickly sussed out that there was actually quite a well uh, suppose a it was a class that everybody recognised. And being foreign, I was somehow out, outside the class system, but I was also somehow you know, and, uh, near the bottom of the ladder. And I saw myself as middle class, you know, so I was keen to actually, you know, be recognised as middle class. But it took me a long time to actually work out how English, the English actually um, allocate social class. And it really wasn't until the last couple of year, uh, years of my time in England that I actually learned the cues that people use and actually learned to use it myself. Um, but having learned all that, it actually appalled me you know, how rigid the English class system was and how difficult it is for people to actually transcend their upbringing. Um, and, and, and I think that for a lot of migrants to England, that becomes a challenge you know, that they feel they want to rise up to and they get caught up you know, in the attempt to actually master, if you like, you know, uh, um, the, the social class system and to get to what they want to get to. But I actually say to myself, now, do I actually want to spend the life, rest of my life doing that? If this is such a rigid class system, what does it say about this society? And I can remember you know, um, on our recon uh, reconnaissance trip to Australia, um, taking a taxi to um, Sydney Airport and having the taxi driver who was, uh, if I remember correctly, someone of South Asian descent or Arabic descent, you know, um, saying to me, oh, isn't this a great country, you know, we've got multiculturalism here, you know, uh, and the, the contrast between the rigidity of English classism really struck me, you know. Mm. Um, and so for me, you know, I think that was um, quite a strong factor in my decision to actually come to Australia. That's so interesting. So I asked you about racism and homophobia and you immediately jumped to, to your love of Australian egalitarianism, <laughs> uh, which I, you know, I, I admire the glass half full approach. But it can't <laughs> have been that easy to arrive in Australia in the late, late 1980s as, uh, as, as a, as a gay Chinese Aust uh, Malaysian man? Um, but I would say, you know, Andrew, you know, that um, if one contrasts, you know, um, uh, the struggles one had, you know, uh, and, uh, as a gay, effeminate Asian man in, in in England, as opposed to a gay, effeminate Asian man in Australia, um, I think Australia is a lot easier. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, so t uh, tell me about your uh, your decision to uh, to transition. Uh, that came relatively late in so in, in some se some mm -hmm. sense in your life. Yes, uh, had did. you had you been thinking about it for a long time? Actually, no. You know, so um, at one level, um, I knew that I was a woman. So um, like some of my patients, you know, um, I'm one of those people who knew that I was a woman inside from the age of. You know, three or four or five or however, mm. or what at, at whatever age, you know, kids actually realize that it's something called gender and what gender they are. Um, and I mean, that's not what all my all my transgender patients say, you know, but a significant number of them do say something like that, you know. Um, so I was one of those that knew from a very young age, you know, um, and hence what I said to you earlier about how through my adolescence, you know. Um, 
I had this fantasy that somehow you know, I could be magically transformed into being, being a woman. Uh, and then when I actually started working at the interchange you know, um, uh, in 1996, there were already um, uh, transgender patients at the interchange. You know, and Peter Rowland, who was the principal of the practice then, were already, was already treating the transgender community in, in Canberra. And I obviously inherited some of those cases. So I was already working and, and uh, providing care you know, for people in the transgender community mm. from very early on in my medical career. I think, like a lot of people um, who have grown up in an earlier era, um, there was probably a certain amount of um, internalized transphobia. Like, you know, oh, I'm not like those other people, you know. Um, uh, um, um, yes, I've got a feminine side to me, you know, but um, uh, I'm not like that. So I think a lot of my... Um, uh, a time being a gay man was spent actually trying to deny the um, feminine side of my nature. Um, now, in the 90s, you know, um, the gay and lesbian and the LGBTIQ community actually held a glitter ball in Canberra. Um, and um, and my partner, so at it, um, we're married now, but at the time my partner and I decided to go. Um, now, Apart from um, a few school plays, you know, when I was in primary school, I had never actually dressed in drag uh, at all. Um, but I thought, oh, well, I'll do it this time, you know, for a bit of a laugh, you know. If you'd been an Australian footballer, you would have uh, done it dozens of times growing <laughs> up. <laughs> yes, but they were, they were secure in their male identity and it wasn't, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, confronting for them to do that in that way. So what was it like for you to put on the put on the dress there for the glitter glitter ball? Well, um, so I uh, bought a dress, got a wig, you know. Um, actually went to a professional um, makeup artist and everything, and um, I looked like a. And when you know when I got all dolled up and things you know, and had some pictures taken, I saw saw those pictures and I think they actually frightened me a little bit because I looked like a Japanese doll, um, you know. In, in some ways, you know, obviously, it's an advantage of me having, um, you know, quite a slight physique, you know, having quite delicate features, you know, um, so that now that I've transitioned, I can say I'm probably quite convincing as a woman. Um, but at the time when I saw myself, I actually looked, as I say, I looked like a Japanese doll, you know, and I thought, oh, you know, every, you know, um, uh, no, I don't think I can. I should do this because you know everyone immediately assume you know, that I'm camp, you know, or I'm a, a, a transgender, etc. And at the time, I wasn't ready to embrace my identity. So in in a way, you know, that was actually a bit counterproductive. That made me actually just push it away for a bit longer. And then you had a, a series of dreams, didn't you? Tell me about the role of dreams, <laughs> dreams play. Well, one really. Um, so. Um, uh, You've obviously done your research. <laughs> in September 2017, I went on holiday to Singapore and um, a gay friend of mine from uh, Malaysia came down to visit me and we actually decided to actually go out to the gay clubs in Singapore. Um, and I hadn't actually realised you know, that um, it was the period of the festival of the Hungry Ghosts. Um, and what the Chinese do you know, during this festival, I think it's a... Uh, um, uh, uh, can't, don't quote me on this, but I think that there's a main night for it, but that it actually spreads over a certain period. 
Anyway, while we were um, uh, going off to the club, I noticed that there were quite a lot of candles and joysticks by the roadside with food offerings. Um, so what um, the Chinese do you know, is that um, they provide you know, these offerings and food you know, and, and burnt offerings as well you know, to hungry goats, you know, which are the goats of people you know, who have either died without being buried you know, or haven't been honoured by their descendants. You know. Again, I might have got it wrong, but that's my understanding. Um, uh, and so they don't get sustenance in the afterlife. You know. uh, and so this is a way of actually appeasing them so that they don't mm. actually cause harm. Um, uh, and actually normally during that time, um, um, superstitious Chinese tend not to go out at all you know, in case they accidentally bump into goats and get bad luck. Anyway, we, you know, it was Professor Hungry Ghost who went out to the club, you know, and that might had a dream of being chased by a ghost. Now, you know, some people would say, oh, yeah, you know, it's because you saw these offerings and, you know, you, you, it was quite suggestive and so you dreamt about it. Um, but the thing is, um, I used to have recurrent dreams of being chased by ghosts um, when I was in my teens and 20s. Now, I can't actually remember exactly when I stopped having those dreams, but I think it happened sometime in my 20s. Um, and in later life, when I look back on it, I th thought it was likely that what happened there was that um, this ghost that was chasing me was actually really my sexuality. Um, and and that's why, you know, in these dreams, um, uh, um, I the ghost never, or never quite caught me but I could never quite get away fully from the ghost. Um, and so when I had a dream again, you know, this time in Singapore, I said to myself you know, that um, these, dreams, these dreams suggest to me you know, that I still have something repressed within me. And I knew from my experience um, with my previous dreams you know, that um, uh, um, repression was probably not a good thing for me psychologically. Um, and so I needed to um, uh, um, open myself up to my subconscious and um, try and work out what it is that I'm actually repressing. And uh, whatever it is, I have to learn to um, uh, whether it's something I like or not, you know, whether it's something pleasant or unpleasant. I need to learn to embrace that. Um, and, and I accepted that it might mean you know, some momentous changes in my life. You know, and I eventually decided that what I was trying to repress was my agenda. So you then went to, how long did the transition take? Well, I started um, on, on medication in November 2017. I then transitioned um, socially and professionally in April 2018. I then had my surgery in, I think it's September 2019. And what was surprising about the process for you? I guess, well, in a way, you know, not a lot of it was very surprising because um, I've obviously um, looked after quite a lot of patients who have been through the process. Mm -hmm. you know? um, when you ask me what was surprising, I think... Well, I don't know if it's surprising, but I think there were several realizations. You know? A lot of my patients, when they come and see me, seem very sure of what they want. Um, and they're usually in a desperate hurry to get to where they want to get to. Um, and um, and so they come give across this sense of absolute certainty that this is right for me, and, and this is the answer to everything, and that's what I want to do. Um, 
for quite a lot of my period of transition, I was trying very hard to work out um, what it is that I really wanted um, and um, what were the uh, relative important what was the relative importance of gender role and gender identity? You know, we are we are social animals, and um, we respond um, strongly to the cues we get from the people around us, and those cues help to reinforce or you know, or as the case may be, you know, um, undermine you know, our sense of self. Um, so was it important to me, you know, uh, for people to see me as a woman? Um, and is that all that's important to me? Or is it important to me too, you know, to actually feel and know that I'm a woman for myself? Um, and as I say, while a lot of my patients seem very sure of the answer, it, it's not, it wasn't entirely clear to me. You know. um, uh, I think that gender role is important um, uh, and that it is important for me, you know, for um, other people to see me as a woman and to treat me as a woman. Um, but I think that for me, that, was, that wasn't um, all I actually wanted. I think I'm quite confident now you know, that um, I wanted to be a woman for myself as well. So most of us only get to go through life with one sexuality, and so you know you get these sort of men are from Mars, women are from Venus kind of uh, <laughs> kind of takes on on you know reflecting the fact that that we only get to see uh, the world through uh, through one sexuality. But but you've seen it through both. So how do people? I might treat correct you? you there and say you, you probably mean gender rather than sexuality. I do. You're quite right. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Gender, gender, through through a single gender. Uh, but you've had the opportunity of of seeing the world through. Uh, uh, people people perceiving you as a man and people perceiving you as a woman. So how do people treat and perceive you differently? Um, I think I might uh, qualify the answer by saying you know, that part of um, uh, my transition is also about the fact that um, I never felt that I fulfilled the gender role of a man as expected of a man all that successfully. <laughs> so if we think about a spectrum of sex- sexuality from sort of... Uh, gender, I should say. Yeah, a spectrum of gender. Yes. I'm not doing very well on this, uh, <laughs> this, this distinction. If we think of a, a spectrum of, of gender from mm-hmm. uh, uh, extremely macho to extremely effeminate, mm-hmm. uh, you didn't mm-hmm. feel as though you were making a, a big, big jump, but more sort of a, a gentle step. No, not entirely. I think what I meant there, you know, Andrew, is that um, when I was a man, you know, I felt that what society expected of a man you know, was somebody who, I suppose, carried themselves confidently as a man. You know? It didn't have to be a, a somebody you know, who had a six-pack and huge muscles. You know? It's somebody who was very confident in their own identity as a man and carried them, themselves completely and unselfconscious, self-consciously as a man. I suppose was able to radiate that masculinity. Um, and I felt that um, I never really managed to actually fulfill that role all that successfully. So I think part of uh, my tension as a man was that feeling that um, um, uh, a certain gender role and gender performance was expected for me, of me, you know, and I tried hard to see, to, to, I suppose, fulfill the expectations that society expected of me. And I don't think I ever fulfilled that very successfully. So, I mean, one of the things that 
that society does, for example, you know, is that um, I've been on various boards and committees, you know, and um, and and the way that um, people see me on this on this board or community is almost the way that I suppose that women get treated. That um, if you are a um, very masculine man, you and you carry yourself you know, that sort of self confidence, you automatically assume to be someone of importance, and that what you say you no know, matters, and people listen to you. Whereas for an effeminate man, man like me, and I suspect that for most women, um, we are often ignored to start off with, and we actually have to prove ourselves to be actually listened to. So I think that was one of the things I actually experienced as a man. And as for your question about how it's different, you know, um, being a man and a woman, I'm much more cognizant, you know, I suppose, you know, of the way that men and women relate to each other. So as a gay man, you know, I always had this sense you know, that there was something going on between men and women. But as a gay man, you know, who uh, was interested in men, you know, um, the men would never direct that sort of thing, that whatever it is, at me, you know. And um, I was really only a, bi- uh, a, a spectator to that, you know. Um, now, as somebody who has transitioned, you know, um, I every now and then, you know, I get offered these courtesies by men you know, who obviously see me as a woman. And we're not going to have sex with each other, you know. We're not even really going to have an active flirtation with each other. But there's just this sense of, I acknowledge you as a woman, and I acknowledge you as a man, you know. That's part of that, um, I suppose, that dance that men and women you know, have with each other, you know, when things work quite well. Now, fortunately, I've not really experienced, you know, um, any um, uh, overt sexism or discrimination so far, you know, being a woman. Um, uh, but my experience of a woman has been fairly short, you know, and maybe that's all, that, that will come. <laughs> For your partner, too, this must have been quite a change. Uh, he... Uh, go, was you know in some sense this this meant that he was changing from being a gay man to a straight man. Um, how did that affect him? Uh, I think in some ways he has found it challenging. <laughs> he did say you know when I uh, was talking to him about a related matter um, a day or two ago, you know that he finds it difficult to remember me as a man. A very amicable relationship with each other. We work well with each other. You know. Um, and he's been very supportive you know, through all my surgery and, and medication and things. For others who are uh, having friends or family members going through a transition, um, what should they be doing to, to support people? Um, people's ideas about, uh, you, know, you know how I was saying earlier about how you know, a lot of my patients come in and seem very sure of themselves, you know, and I found that I actually went through quite a lot of um, uh, uh, exploration as to what it is I want, you know. Um, so, but the other side of it is that people's, uh, I suppose, feelings about their gender may not be actually cast in stone, you know, and things can change over time. Um, and um, I think, you know, when you ask me what friends and family should do, you know, well, I think you know, that they need to be guided, you know, by what that the person who's going through this process actually wants. One of the really challenging areas, I think, you know, that um, is creating, I think, quite a lot of um, uh, discussion, you know, and um, I suppose tension within society is 
really the treatment of uh, transgender children and adolescents. And that's um, uh, very much, you know, I think, at the forefront of our culture wars now, unfortunately. I mean, in Canberra, where we've actually got a well-educated uh, population, um, or, or where a large number of the people living in Canberra are, are well-educated, we've got a, a population with quite um, uh, so liberal and permissive social attitudes. Um, so most of the... Um, uh, adolescents I've seen have actually had parents who are um, uh, keen to support them and who want to do whatever they can to, for the happiness of their child. But I certainly have had some um, uh, uh, consultations um, where I've had parents who do not support their uh, uh, child's gender choice. Um, and um, it's, I think it's really quite tragic for the child when that sort of thing happens. Uh, you're, uh, you've been in the news a lot this year as a result of a uh, decision you made uh, just prior to uh, Australia Day this year to, uh, to hand back your uh, uh, OAM. Uh, how, how did you come to that decision and, uh, and how long did it take to make? Um, I don't think it actually took very long to make the decision at all. You know, so um, on the Friday before Australia Day, I um, I subscribed to the Guardian online, so at the end of my workday, and I think it was about three thirty, three four o'clock in the afternoon. You know, I so I thought, oh yes, I finished my things for the day. I'll just have a quick look at the Guardian and see what the headlines are before I head off for home. And I then read this news that Margaret Court was to be elevated to the highest honor um, in our Australian honor system, um, and I was fairly um, outraged by that. I think, you know, your listeners will probably have heard me talk about this on other fora. Um, uh, and, um, uh, you know, and for the people who haven't heard about this, you know, what I felt, you know, was that um, uh, whatever um, uh, the Council for the Order of Australia made in its citation about why they'd actually given the award to Margaret Court, um, uh, Margaret Court's main claim to fame over the last 15, 20 years has actually been about making um, homophobic and transphobic comments. Um, so comments which have been very negative and hurtful to people in the LGBTI community. So whatever they say in a citation about the reasons why they're giving, uh, sort of elevating uh, Margaret Court to a higher level award, um, the impression that's left with the public is that they are actually rewarding her for her behaviour. Um, now, it seems, since the citation has come out, you know, um, uh, and since a, some one or more members of the council have leaked to the Fairfax media, um, they now say that they're honouring her for a tennis, for community work, um, and that it's about elevating her to the same level as Rod Laver. Um, Nevertheless, you know, I don't think they've actually addressed what I've, what my issue has been, which is that, you know, uh, her main claim, you know, all right, at the end of the day, you know, the value of something like um, uh, a, an order Australia uh, lies with how the community sees it. And the perception of the community is you know, that Margaret Court's main activity in the last 20 years or so um, that has come to public prominence is really about making 
um, uh, comments that have been hurtful to the LGBTI community. So whatever they say in the citation, that's impression that's left with the public. Um, and at the end of the day, that actually debases the, the awards that are being handed out. You, your decision received a, a, an outpouring of, uh, of support, including uh, Kerry O'Brien preemptively saying he wouldn't accept an Australian honour in uh, 2021, uh, and then the Tasmanian artist uh, Peter Kingston saying he was handing his back in solidarity with you. Uh, were you surprised at the level of uh, positive support you received? Um, I was actually very surprised by the amount of media attention that um, um, my action actually um, uh, created. Um, because when I actually made the decision to hand my award back, I was very um, uh, 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 realistic about it. Um, after all, hundreds of OAMs I actually handle every year. Um, and uh, besides a few people in Canberra, nobody actually knows who I am. So I was quite prepared you know, for... Um, my um, action to be completely ignored um, and for not absolutely nothing to happen. So I was actually a bit surprised by how much um, uh, media attention it actually garnered. I think it speaks to the fact that a um, large uh, uh, portion of the Australian community actually agree with my sentiments. Um, uh, and I think as the um, gay poster vote showed, um, the majority of Australians in the majority of states and territories in Australia do not believe it's acceptable to discriminate against the LGBTI community. Um, I was also quite prepared to see, I was also quite prepared for a situation where nobody else would actually give up their awards in solidarity. Obviously, if other people did, you know, it then lent um, greater weight you know, to my action. Um, and uh, with Kerry O'Brien, he's obviously a very well-known and very respected figure in Australia. And I was actually so touched and honoured you know, by the uh, um, very nice things he said about me. <laughs> uh, is there anything you'd do differently again? Oh, I don't think so. Because <laughs> you, you seem to jump on it very quickly and to then be... Uh, very active in terms of using that as a platform to talk about uh, discrimination against uh, uh, the uh, gay and lesbian community and the transgender transgender community. Um, yeah, so uh, as I said earlier, I was slightly um, surprised by the amount of media attention. Um, but when the media all came calling, um, I don't think I turned down a single interview, you know, because I thought that it was important for me to actually front the media and to get um, uh, this... Um, action out there so that people knew, you know, that um, uh, um, knew about this you know, and, they, and they could respond to it. Um, I've had a few people say, to, well, I think one of the, I, we, we, you know, um, um, my practice was actually receive a lot of emails about this. Um, I also fully expected there were people who didn't uh, approve my actions and would criticize me, and we did get some emails like that. Um, but the majority of the emails were people who actually supported me. Um, and um, there was one email from a um, woman who wrote in to say you know, that she had a seven-year-old non-binary child and that she and the child were both experiencing discrimination and bullying. Um, and that she had been very heartened by my action. And I think, you know, a response from that, you know, even if I had, even if I had just, just one person responding like that, 
I would have felt that what I had done was worth it because you know, I could potentially have made a, dif- a big difference to this person's life, you know, and that difference could have made the difference between life and death. Um, because we do know, you know that um, self-harm rates are very high um, in um, uh, gender-questioning youth, um, and uh, we want to do everything we can to actually um, prevent that sort of thing from happening. It's a beautiful story. Clara, let me finish up by asking you a series of questions asked to all of my interviewees. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? All right. I think that one, I think it would have been a little bit different, difficult for me to have trod a different path, you know. Um, uh, given what I've described, the upbringing I had, you know, there probably wasn't a lot I could do, you know, to change my life until I was actually um, financially independent. Um, probably one of the things I would have said to my younger self, you know, what is to um, is to trust in my emotional intelligence. I think um, I think that emotional intelligence is we're starting to appreciate that now, but I think emotional intelligence is still um, uh, rather undervalued, um, uh, um, and uh, maybe I would have made some smarter decisions if I learn to work on that earlier. <laughs> when are you most happy? We, um, we've got a couple of boxer dogs. And uh, if you know anything about boxers, they're a little bit silly. They're full of energy. <laughs> um, uh, they're, and they're, and, but they're also very affectionate. Um, and my dogs are also, you know, a little bit socially inappropriate. Um, and the thing about dogs, you know, is that when they're doing something like that they're really happy like that, they're completely absorbed in the moment. And you can see their pure joy, you know, at what they're doing, you know, without thinking about anything else. Um, and, you know, I can remember on some of those beautiful, still, um, uh, pleasant Australia, uh, Canberra days, you know, when you got sun, it's neither too hot nor too cold, you know, um, uh, coming back, you know, from... I, I sectioned my dogs there with my husband and thinking, um, if there is um, a happiness in family life, you know, then this is it. And I must hold on this moment and remember this, you know, so that in times in the future, when I don't have this anymore, I will remember that this is something I had one day and that I have, that, and that I have experienced. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? I think most of the time I'm a fairly grounded person. Um, like some people, uh, my life is probably a little bit too busy. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I sort of realise that, um, uh, you know, I think when one's too busy, it's easy to say, all right, you know, when I get over this and I can cut it out, I'll be be- uh, things will be fine. Or if I stop doing, you know, when I, that particular task is finished, I'll be fine. But I think um, uh, that's happened often enough now, you know, and I don't seem to be any the less busy, that I realise that I'm probably one of these people who, who probably um, uh, create the circumstances where I actually keep busy. Uh, and that if I didn't, if I didn't have anything I was, uh, that I had to do, I'll probably think of things that, that, that will keep me busy. Um, um, but on the other hand, as I say, you know, I think I'm um, a fairly grounded person, uh, and I'm act, uh, and I'm generally quite an optimistic person. And most of the time, um, my 
family and work circumstances are quite congenial, you know. So I think, um, so overall, you know, that I think that those add up to my being, you know, reasonably content in my life most of the time. <laughs> do you have Do you have any guilty pleasures? No, I'm a very controlled person. <laughs> <laughs> Um, for somebody who's actually done a lot of work you know, with the um, with people with drug dependency, um, um, I'm very boring from that point of view. Um, uh, I've never used any of the drugs or dependence I prescribe. Uh, I've never even um, inhaled. Um, uh, I have a glass of alcohol now and then, and that's about it. <laughs> and finally, Clara, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I can't say it's one thing or one person, Andrew. So, um, uh, I think to some extent, you know, um, I've been influenced, you know, by um, Buddhist ideas about compassion. Um, uh, but um, I've also felt, you know, that we often think about great people, you know, who do wonderful works. Um, but if you look at some of the um, people who are widely regarded as great in the world, you know, um, and, you know, say Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela comes to mind, you know, um, they were great, you know, for the majority of their fellow countrymen. countrymen um, but the lives they gave their immediate families, I suspect, were absolute hell. Um, so... Um, I don't tend to hero worship that as a result. And I think, you know, that um, the people we should regard as heroes are really the unsung heroes of everyday life. The people who do the little things of kindnesses, you know, um, that the people around them take for granted. Um, but it's those things, you know, that actually provide the lubrication on which our society th thrives. And um, it's those people, you know, who actually... Um, create true happiness for the people around them. Clara Tuckming Sue, thank you very much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Kate McGregor, Benjamin Law and Michael Kirby. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please... Leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.